Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Welcome back to No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, director of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign and living in the West Virginia Hills. This season of No Place Like Home, we've been diving headlong into all the climate feels, the emotional, psychological, and spiritual elements of climate change. And one of the great listeners and friends we have had along the way is joining us for the final episode of the season. Her name is Mary Anais Heglar, and she works with NRDC. She is a climate justice essayist and a Twitter genius, and we are so excited to talk with her today. I am so thrilled that we're wrapping up this season with Mary Anais. She just has this giant heart, and she's utterly brilliant. And the courage and the insights and the beauty that she brings to the climate movement is profound. And I'm just so excited to share it with all of you. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Oh my gosh, Marianne, I am so excited to be catching up with you and all of our listeners. And just so you know, listeners, this is our last episode of the All the Climate Fuel season. So we're going to go deep and bring our full heart. And it, it might be a little lengthier than normal, but we're so excited to be here with you. And I'm so excited to be here with you, Marianne. Oh, Anna Jane, this season has been so amazing. You know, when we started this, it was actually last year. And uh, so much has happened since then that, you know, I think we, we've felt we were on sort of a lonely journey at the beginning. And now climate anxiety is all over in the news, whether it's release of the uninhabitable earth, that book by David Wallace Wells, that got everyone talking or the Green New Deal or the UN report about a million species going extinct. There has just been all of this or the youth climate strike. You know, there's just been all this coverage of climate anxiety and how people are coping with it. And so the fact that we've been traversing this land and this territory together over the past few months with our listeners and these amazing guests is just really feels like it's all come at the right time. And, and I can't imagine a better person to be on the journey with than you. I know it is. It's really crazy how much this season has just personally helped me like have concrete narratives and stories and tips on how to like navigate this like incredible anxiety. And I had, you know, kind of a a rough couple of weeks recently because one of my mentors, Rachel Held Evans, passed away. She was kind of known as the mother of the evangelical diaspora, <laughs> so which of which I am a part. You know, she was young. She's just meant so much to so many people 
But one of the big things that she talked a lot about and that she shared through her work that's just a, a lesson to me that also we've talked about in this season is just the importance of vulnerability and really acknowledging your humanity and even your like faults and uncertainties and doubts. And that's something that we've definitely talked about in a season in light of climate change. And I just... I'm really trying to take that forward with me. Like, how can we be brave, but also vulnerable in wrestling with this? Because it is hard. And sometimes we don't know what to do. Absolutely. And I think you and I both love the great spiritual teacher, Joanna Macy. And we were both sharing a recent interview, replayed interview on the, the show On Being, where she talked about not turning away from the fact that this stuff is painful, because if we can actually sit with that, once we work our way through it, it's a profound love on the other side. And if we're working and operating out of that profound love, that's the power that's really going to change the world. And going back to you know, what you said about Rachel Held Evans and the vulnerability, it's hard. It's, it's hard to actually look right in the face of what's happening, but that's also, I think, where the power is. And I think that that's sounds like a lesson you took from your great hero, Rachel Held Evans. And I'm just so sorry for your loss. And I know she probably meant a lot to a lot of our listeners too. And so just our condolences and sympathy to everybody who's been wrestling with that. Yes, she was an amazing woman and teacher and still is. And I think too, like, especially after, in, in the days after she died, and this whole, you know, millions of sort of spiritual misfits who grew up in the evangelical community or who have otherwise come to her work were in this just like state of profound and severe grief and anger. And and it coincided with the release of that really scary report about um, the death of like a million species and the loss of biodiversity and how that's going to impact humans like that came out the same day or I think the day after we found out she died and so also the whole climate world and people even beyond that are just freaking out too and so it was just this moment of like intense grief and overwhelm and anxiety and anger and sadness and fear and I did like I had to have a day or two where I just like allowed myself to feel all those really dark things and, and express those things, you know, and, and just be like, this sucks. <laughs> like, this is really shitty. But I also, one of the things that I've learned as a human and as an activist and through all these amazing teachers that we've talked to on this, on this season and journey is that you just, you have to allow yourself to be there, but you also have to like do whatever you need to do to like find the courage to rise back up again, which is for me, that's meditation and prayer and listening to podcasts like Joanna Macy and just sitting in my garden and feeling the, the beauty all around me and talking to you and my dear friends and other people who are also going through all of these difficult emotions. So that's another big thing I'm, I'm taking away is like, we have to look at the pain. We have to feel it. And it's totally okay if that's where you are. God knows I've been there for uh, moments, days, and even sometimes months at a time. But like, how can you climb back out of that by surrounding yourself with beauty? Well, as you know, Anna Jane, a couple of weeks ago, I delivered what amounts to a sermon at Shepherdstown Presbyterian Church, which I attend. Uh, we call it a reflection since I am clearly not a minister. Um, but I was touching on some of these same themes and the one of the main messages I tried to share with people was that in the faith tradition, you know, of the Presbyterian Church, there are all of these stories about having the courage to challenge the powerful and finding the strength to look difficult problems in the eye 
when everyone else wants to look away or when you have the temptation to look away and then acting on that from a place of love and nonviolence. And that those are the great lessons that I think um, we need to carry into these very big, scary problems that we're facing that yes, we may feel overwhelmed, but whatever your faith or your tradition is, we have great stories and heroes to lean on who show us how to challenge the powerful and find the courage to do that, to look hard things in the face and how to, how to act out of love and compassion and nonviolence. And I think that that's a lesson I took throughout this whole season of our podcast was how to move through and don't succumb to the paralysis that can come from feeling overwhelmed, but move through it to a place of action grounded in love. And, you know, I think that that's, that's the work ahead of all of us. I love that so much. Well, Marianne, you are one of my spiritual teachers, so I'm glad to hear you're getting getting in front of the pulpit these days. Uh, like the whole like Easter resurrection story has become so important to me, just as a metaphor and a narrative and a teacher, and and not just the rising, but the fact that like they went through like a dark season of loss and sadness and grief and uncertainty um, before they got to the the resurrection and the rising. And I think sometimes we forget that, like the pain comes and the dark comes before the light, but it, it really has helped me like be less scared of, of the dark moments and the scary moments and the uncertainty. And just, you know, every rebirth takes us through that part of the journey. And actually I had, so Marianne Ice is obsessed with bats <laughs> and I rescued a baby bat the other day. So my little sister for Christmas gave me these beautiful like spirit animal oracles. They're like cards that you can you can look to your spirit animal guides to see what they say. So I looked up bat energy, mostly to share with Marianne Ice, but I was just curious since it showed up in my life. But I love this. I want to read you this quote because it's related to this conversation. It says, bat spirit has come to remind you that this rebirth is a miraculous one for the very best elements of what you had to give up in the death of the old are still present in the new amazing life forming now. Bat spirit reminds you that at present you're in unknown territory and may feel as if you are lost. However, you will call to trust that your intuition will be a reliable guide as you give birth to something new and unfamiliar. And it goes on to just say all this beautiful stuff about overcoming darkness and that space in between when you're afraid and uncertain, but how that's actually kind of like, like composting and becoming this like new life and, and new relationships. And I loved that as like a metaphor for where we are in the world and the climate movement. Like we're in this scary in between dark place, but I really believe that we're kind of becoming something new and beautiful that we don't even realize yet. That is powerful, Anna Jane. And I think that's the, you know, you could use the word faith to describe that feeling that we just have to stay on this path and it's, it's the best we can do and trust that we are going to build something better together, even though the odds seem very long and difficult. And, you know, one thing I think um, I want to be sure that uh, before we go to that great conversation that we touch on is the Arctic Refuge, because that episode of this season was one of our most popular and got a lot of great responses. And it does come up in our conversation with her. But I think there's some new developments there. Actually, maybe you can fill us in on what they are so that as people are thinking, well, what do I do other than be paralyzed by my despair? What, you know, what is one step down this road I can take with everyone? Um, I think there is something concrete that people can do right now. 
Yes, there is. I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because it has been on my heart and mind a lot lately. And that was one of my all-time favorite episodes. I've there's been a few where I teared up, but that was like the first one where I was like weeping <laughs> as I was interviewing her, just listening to the the story of of what the Gwich'in are going through and and fighting for the sacred place where all life begins, which is really kind of a metaphor for what we're all fighting for. But yes, yeah, so the Arctic Refuge, it's, there's actually exciting news on that, which I'm excited to report. Um, there is a bill to protect the Arctic Refuge um, and to stand in solidarity with the Gwich'in and, and protecting their human rights that just passed out of committee in the House of Representatives, and it's going to go to the floor for a vote in the next couple of months. So everyone here, if you want to to take action to protect our world and protect the Gwich'in and in the sacred place, then you can call your representatives and tell them to please vote yes for this bill to protect the Arctic Refuge. Well, thank you for bringing that to us so that folks have something tangible that they can they can do as they are navigating their their emotions about the state of our world and also operating out of the joy for what a great, beautiful, wonderful, spectacular place it is that we all want to protect. So I would love to get into this conversation now with Mary Anais. And before we do, Anna Jane, just thank you. Thank you for the gift of this season and all these profound conversations. I've, I have found listening back to them sometimes that they have made me feel better, <laughs> have given me some clarity about, about what to do in these crazy times. Um, and I know a lot of that is because of the profound wisdom that comes from you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Marian. Um, that means the world. I, it's been just an honor to bring this beautiful um, series of conversations to our listeners. And thank you for, for joining this journey with me. Absolutely. Well, we have got one more. We are so thrilled to wrap up this season with the amazing Mary Anais Heglar. But before we do that, we are going to hear from one of our listeners about how they are staying sane and thriving in the era of climate change. Hi, my name is Katherine Wilkinson. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, but sending these thoughts in from Colorado. Here's how I'm staying sane in the face of climate change. Poetry and writing ground me and help me make sense of things. For the last two decades, Mary Oliver's wisdom has often kept me going. Dogs remind me to be here now and not to waste a moment of possible joy, frolicking, cuddles, or snacks. My main squeeze, Arthur, is some serious magic. I get myself to mountains and rivers as often as I can. I need to feel connected to the living systems of this planet, even as they fray, to feel small in the best way possible, to continue learning from nature's wisdom. Today, looking out at a stand of aspen trees, I'm taking some lessons from them. They remind me that having thin skin isn't a bad thing, and I have hopelessly thin skin. Their delicate gray-green bark is chock full of chlorophyll. It enables their whole structure to participate in photosynthesis, not just leaves. That means aspens can gather energy all winter and thrive in places other deciduous trees simply can't. So there's beauty and power in thin skin. And while aspens may appear to human eyes as simply individual trees, they actually aren't. If we could peer underground, we'd find an extensive root system. Each tree is a small part of a single, larger organism. It reminds me of the power of being in community with kindred spirits, especially other women. 
A monthly circle has become essential practice for me to restore my spirit and stay sane. So to recap, words, dogs, nature, it's wisdom, circles of wisdom, and sometimes, because I'm a bitter Southerner after all, a good bourbon. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So for our last episode of this season on All the Climate Feels, we sat down with Mary Anais Heglar, and she came prepared. And since we are going to get into All the Climate Feels, I brought supplies for that. Aw, chocolate! I love it. I'm so into chocolate. Open this. Do it. Do it. I'm going for the peanut butter cups. Just, I mean, we'll have a little unwrapping sound here, perhaps. Let's just get it out of the way. I mean, all the climate feels are. They're real, right? They are made better by chocolate. That's so true. Well, we're so glad that you are here. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm so excited to talk to you. Well, so you know on this season of the podcast that um, we have been diving into all the climate feels, Mm -hmm. and we have loved your responses on Twitter, where you're (laughs) putting all the climate feels out there for the world every day, and uh, so beautifully. And I think that one of the reasons that we thought you'd be a great person to do this wrap-up of the season, because you bring that heart into Mm -hmm. your activism every day, do you remember kind of the birth of that in your own life where you sort of woke up to that and the all the emotions around it or was it has it kind of always been there um I mean I think I'm a pretty emotional person it sort of starts slowly coming together I mean I I came through environmentalism through my my job um at one of the big green groups in RDC where I still work and my role there was really working on a lot of the policy reports, which are, by their very nature, um, this is not a criticism, but they are generally pretty nuanced and measured and technical. But I saw the people behind the stats, and I saw the future behind those projections. And that is is harrowing. And so I sort of couldn't not see that. Um, that sort of turned into, for me, what I call climate vision, basically the world's worst superpower. Where <laughs> you see climate change everywhere. Um, and I, I've written about this a little bit where, like, I would see, you know, a regular street on New York City with regular things happening. But in my head, I would see, like, this monster tornado come down out of nowhere and lay waste to everything. I would see floods where there weren't really floods, like, because I was seeing what the projections would actually look like in real life. And there's no way for that not to be emotional. And so getting into the groove and, like, starting to read the reports and understand the reports was kind of like the shock factor. I definitely went through a phase of, like, just 
kind of numbness about it all and going through this cycle in my head of, is it that bad? It can't be that bad. Oh my God, it's that bad. Over and over mm. and over again. When I came out of shock, and I don't really remember how I came out of shock, went into kind of like a depression where it was just sort of felt like I was walking on a cloud, like I wasn't really there. Like anytime I was trying to engage with other people, I kind of felt like I was halfway in the conversation, halfway not. Then I got angry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the anger is so useful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's kind of where I try to stay. But I'd be lying if I said that I don't sometimes oscillate back into depression, that I don't sometimes oscillate back into even shock of, like, just the enormity of it. And sometimes I feel paralyzed by that shock. But the anger was more useful to me because it got rid of the shame. I started to—I talk about this a little bit in my writing, but just this idea that people think it's their fault, mm -hmm. and that is extraordinarily huh, counterproductive and not true. You know, it is the fault of the industries and the governments that have, have failed us. And we've sort of internalized this idea of internal action, or not internal, individual action. And that turns into individual guilt and individual shutdown. And that's not useful. So the anger was like, no, this isn't my fault. You're doing this to this me. This is not because I didn't bring my bag to the store. No, no. It's not because I left the lights on. It's not yeah. because I turned the heat up too high. Someone put that poison in your pipe. Someone, the, some plastic industry bought that, made those plastic bags long before you even went to the grocery store. So those are the people that need to be held accountable. Well, you have written a beautiful piece recently. We'll link to it for yes. sure. If people haven't read it, they oh. must, about how problematic it is that climate activists will call climate change the first existential threat that we mm -hmm. have ever faced. So for folks who maybe haven't read that, could you just give us sort of the main message from it, but also what, was there a particular moment that sparked you to write it or something that you read or was had this, this, this like drip, drip, drip thing that finally you just couldn't take it anymore? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the point of that piece was basically to say the climate movement could stand to learn a lot from the civil rights movement. That was really what I wanted to say. And there were a couple of aha moments that kind of led to it. Um, I, back in, um, maybe it was January or December, somewhere around there, I tweeted something from Zora Neale Hurston that said, um, if you're silent about my, your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. And the way Climate Twitter reacted to that, I was like, oh, my God, y'all have never read Zora Neale Hurston. Because hmm. they went wild, like, so many retweets. <laughs> I was like, y'all have never seen this quote before in your lives. Like, it blew people's minds. And I was like, ah, okay, you've never seen this before. And then I tweeted something else a few months later from James Baldwin, because my self-care for January, I mean, for February, was to read all of my James Baldwin all over again. Didn't get through all of it, but got through a lot. And one of my favorite quotes from him is that you can resign yourself to the end of your own life, but to resign yourself to uh, the ends of your children's lives and your children's children's life, that's not resignation. That's the sickness unto death. And again, climate Twitter, like, oh, my God, like, minds were blown. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I haven't read James Baldwin. And so I start, as I'm reading him, and I read some more Martin Luther King, um, I reread a letter from Birmingham jail, and the parallels between what they were up against 
and where we're up against were just blinding to me and just like sort of the opposition coming out of the exact same playbook, right? You read a letter from Birmingham jail and they're telling Martin Luther King, I agree with your goals, but I don't agree with your methods. They're too mm. aggressive. You need to wait. You need to go in increments. We need to go this slow. And he's like, I can't. People are dying, mm. right? Like, and maybe you don't care because those people aren't you and like you want to be pragmatic and you want to be practical, but that doesn't work. There are real lives on the line here. Um, and so the parallel to climate change and like the shouts of, of wait your turn or not even wait your turn, just wait. And incrementalism, like it was just so blinding to me. I was like, I want to show everyone else what I see here. And then there was another moment I was listening to um, another one of my favorite podcasts, Gaslit Nation, and they were talking about um, the St. Louis race riots of the 1900s. And they said something about, um, you know, East St. Louis is right across the river from St. Louis. And these these race riots were really, really, really terrible. Like People had to literally swim over the river Mm -hmm. to safety in East St. Louis. And they said that when the people in East St. Louis heard you know, what was happening, like the the physical sound, it sounded like a natural disaster. They didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just was like, I immediately like sat down and wrote, um, I was walking in the West Village and I just sat down at the first place that I could. And I wrote that middle part about, I want you to know how insurmountable it felt. Um, I don't know, it's such a boring concept to me. <laughs> Well, and it seems like there is a whole generation of of new activists who are not letting fear slow them down. You yeah. know, like Greta Thunberg and mm-hmm. um, and Jamie Margolin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep, and the Sunrise Movement. And mm-hmm. what do you see in that as, from a movement perspective that maybe seems different than the climate movement of the decades before? It's way more intersectional, and that gives me a lot of hope. It's way more direct. I feel like the environmental movement has largely tried very hard to neuter its urgency. And I think that's done it a grave, grave, grave disservice in the sense that separating the environmental movement from everything else um, also does a major disservice. Like, like, this is environmentalism over here. And way, way, way over there is criminal justice. And way over there is reproductive rights. And way over there is, like, Black Lives Matter. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that is, as a person of color, it was really alienating to me about the environmental movement. Like, it sort of felt like, this is ours over here. (laughs) And I was just kind of like, all right, fine. I got enough problems to work on. So (laughs) I won't worry about breathing the air or drinking the water. (laughs) Well, right, right. Um, And I also think, just to get back a little bit to your question earlier, By doing that separation, the environmental movement does itself a precedent because it feels like this has never happened in the history. So we can't learn from anything in history as to how to to deal with this. One of the things you've said is that climate movement is long overdue for a genuine root cause analysis, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is sort of interwoven in everything you've been saying. But what what do you mean by that? Or um, what does that mean for someone who... Mm-hmm. may not see the what the root cause is. Yeah, so I often hear people say that our ancestors didn't know that the Industrial Revolution would lead us here. And that is really off-putting to me because, first of all, my ancestors did not do this. They mm-hmm. did not do this. They At the time that this was happening, they were being forced to pick cotton and uh, tobacco and sugar cane. Like, they are, I don't think 
they can be held to the same level of account. They can't. They absolutely can't. That's not a thing. So that's one thing. But also, one of the the exercises I've learned in my work on racial equity and racial organizing is to always ask why five times. It's called the five whys. So if climate change comes from carbon emissions, where do the carbon emissions come from? They come from fossil fuel industry. Where does that come from? The Industrial Revolution. Where did that come from? Slavery. Mm. You don't even have to go five times. It was just four. <laughs> right? Yeah. And where does slavery come from? Conquest. Right? Like people get to the United States and realize, oh, we have to pick the cotton? Oh, <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Turn the boat around. Let's go over here. So these things felt so um, clear to me. And I started to realize, like, no, everybody is not seeing what I'm seeing. I'm going to need to talk about this more. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for talking about it more. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I was curious before we jump into a fun game exercise, <laughs> when you think about climate change, just like on the topic of the fields, like what is your gut feeling right now, like emotionally in your body? And also kind of where do you derive the most courage at this moment? When I think about climate justice, I feel it in my shoulders mm. and it feels like a bright light shining across my shoulders so that they spread, mm-hmm. which to me um, is indicative of courage. It's indicative of forward motion. You know, it's important to remember that courage is not the absence of fear. It's the activation of fear. Mm-hmm. And so it just sort of feels like no matter, like, don't think about what's behind you. Don't think about what's inside of you. Keep moving forward. That's mm-hmm. the feeling I have when I think of climate justice. And the place where I'm getting the most encouragement or, or brave, like channeling my courage from right now is James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I will keep going back to that. Um, when, I, when I read his writing, um, I have a very physical, visceral um, reaction. Like I feel tingling through my fingers. Like I feel my, my spine stretch out like a, a possum. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, for anybody listening who's not from the South, yeah. um, possums are badasses. <laughs> That's true. They totally are. If they you also see text. a possum stretching out his spine, it's about to go down. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel, like, from in, like, attack mode. Oh, not, I love it. Well, attack mode is probably a little strong. But you know what I mean. Go mode. Yes, like exactly. Like, fierce mama possum mode. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. I just want to, like, leave our listeners and us <laughs> with, like, what does—I still am having a hard time wrapping around my head around, like, what does that world that we want to bring into being look like? Yeah. You know, what are we like, fighting for? Yeah. It kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, we have our—it's so hard to imagine something past what you've experienced and what mm-hmm. you've seen. And so I think that we need that language and vision to be able to describe what we're working towards. So I just want us to, like, picture that we're all old grandmothers. Or I might not be one because I'm still on the fits about kids. You can be godmothers. We'll be, <laughs> yes, we'll be godmothers. Um, sitting on the, a rocking chair um, on a porch and just talking about, like, you know, the world we came from and the world that we helped build. And what does it look like that's, that's different? Well, one thing that needs to be the same is I need to have a glass of sweet tea. Is that okay? <laughs> yes. 100%. <laughs> Some things can stay the same. Okay. (laughs) I want to live in a world that's more equitable. I want to live in a world that 
um, has embraced and implemented climate reparations. Mm. Yeah. And I want to live in a world where everyone has solar panels and electric cars, but it's everyone, not just people who have money and not just people who have uh, the access, but everyone has them. And because of that, everybody's a little more Mm self-reliant. And not only is it less polluted, but it's quieter, more peaceful because you have all these, you know, everybody's Mm -hmm. got their electric vehicles, taking them around. And uh, And trains. Can we have trains? Oh, and trains, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, then we'll then we'll come visit you in Alabama. Yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for the past couple of days, trying to come up with a really smart, thoughtful answer because I think it's so important that we start going there so we can know what we're building. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that comes to mind for me, in addition to both of those things, is moving away from the American over-reliance on individualism Mm -hmm. and really, um, like, I I see communities just working better together, you know, like, whether that's growing their own food, just being, you know, spending more time together, helping each other as we go through crazy changes. Yeah, just being more involved in helping each other, each other's lives. And I think part of that is practical. Like, I think we probably are going to end up having to be more locally focused as we deal with climate change. And so we're going to need to build very resilient communities. But part of it's because that that's like something like, you know, with American like crazy anti like depress antidepressant rates and suicide rates. And mm-hmm. I think all of our McMansions, the truth is the world that we've created right now is not only not sustainable, but it's not healing and nourishing to a lot of people, arguably most people. And mm-hmm. so like how do we actually build communities and relationships and systems that help us stay connected and nourished and and excited to be to be alive on this planet because it's a gift (laughs) i hope we have a woman of color as our president yes (laughs) hopefully it's you hang on (laughs) hang on so back up here. Um, I would also say that by 2050, scientists have moved away from proving that climate change exists because it's settled. Right? Oh, like everyone yeah. knows. Yeah. And they can then focus their energy on other things of like, how do we get out of this mess? Yeah. And that that science is done in concert with a really strong core of morality. Mm-hmm. And I only say that because we wouldn't have had the fossil fuel industry if someone hadn't figured out that fossil fuels mm. could do that. Yeah. Um, so I, this is why science always needs a strong core of justice. Moral. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And I would love to see like an Apollo project or something for all fossil fuel workers and communities, whether mm-hmm. it's in the Gulf Coast or Appalachia, mm-hmm. um, all the people who we need their industries to be phased out if we're going to have a planet to live on, that they are put uh, at the center of a really, truly just transition and that um, we don't leave anybody behind as we mm-hmm. shift to a clean energy economy. If I could if I could just put one thing on my list, that would be it mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I love that. My last one for now, although I know I'll wake up with like 10 new ideas later and be like, man. Um, but That's what Twitter's for. I know. That's what Twitter's for. Um, I hope all this partisan bullshit is gone. <laughs> yeah. like, like I hope that we um, just all of the like moral wars that particularly white evangelicals like my dad have been waging and how divisive that that's gotten. Just how mm-hmm. divisive our country is right now, which is – 
Yeah, like, and also dealt with the root causes of yeah. a lot of these issues, which are racism and patriarchy and fear yeah. and yeah. So, I would I want to like a spirituality and a moral compass <laughs> that isn't like your team versus my team, right? You know, yeah. I want to see more land return to indigenous peoples. Mm. I feel like that would just solve all. So yeah. many problems. Yeah. Right? Just yes. like you can't implement new geoengineering has to be governed by that. No implementation of new technologies without approval from a very rigorous board of, mm. of indigenous peoples. The boreal forest is returned to indigenous people, mm. the whole thing. Same with the Amazon, yeah. the Amazon rainforest. And I could probably name a bunch of others, but yeah, that's what I want to see. Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Exactly. Just just give it back. <laughs> yeah. Just give it back. All right. We have one final question. Oh unless boy. you have anything else you want to add that's burning. So in 2050, when we're sitting in our rocking chairs drinking sweet tea, mm-hmm. how will we be feeling about climate change? Oh, I think we'll still be deeply concerned. Because there's no way we're not, yeah. you know, we've already done so much damage right now. I'm concerned right now. Yeah. Um, But I think we'll feel um, concerned about climate change, but hopeful about one another. Hmm. I love that so much. Concerned about climate change, but hopeful about one another. Oh, I love that too. And for all of our listeners out there, no matter how you are feeling about climate change now or on your front porch 50 years from now with your sweet tea. We are so glad that you joined us for this really profound and beautiful season of All the Climate Feels. There's so much more to talk about and explore in this area because this problem, unfortunately, isn't going to go away anytime soon. And we all need the the strength and the emotional kind of wherewithal and solid headspace to be able to tackle it. So thank you out there to so many listeners, whether you've been listening for a long time or just joined us this season. We hope that this has been helpful to you on your journey. And if you have found it helpful, uh, we'd love your help in spreading the word about the show and about this season. And you should follow us on social media because we are coming back with a new season. We will be dropping some hints and sneak peeks there. And in addition to sharing those with you, We want to hear from you. We want to know what you're interested in. What would you like us to talk about? So if you've got ideas or burning inspiration for our next season, we want to hear it. So please connect with us on Instagram or Twitter. On Instagram, you can find us at No Place Like Home Podcast. And on Twitter, we're at NPLH Podcast. Huge thanks to the awesome band who composed our theme music, River Wireless, and also to all of the incredibly talented people who worked with us to produce this season and to bring it to you. There there are many, and we're just so grateful to have a wonderful team. And also to all of our incredible guests who brought just their whole hearts and incredible wisdom to us and to our community of listeners. We are so, so grateful. And we can't wait to see all of you next season. And remember, there's no place like home.